0: Hello, everyone. This is Brad Thomas with The Ground Up, and I'm back again with another CEO Roundtable interview. Uh, Today, I'm joined with uh, Bill Meany. Bill is the CEO of Iron Mountain. Ticker symbol is IRM. And Bill, it's good to see you today. Good to see you, Brad. Thanks for having me. You bet. Well, uh, thank you. It looks like you're back in the office. I think last time you were at home. Uh, So uh, pretty clear message here that you are in your office. So how are things going? I guess at a high level in terms of uh, Iron Mountain and the, uh, you know, obviously you've been working all through the pandemic because you have an essential business. But it's good to see you back in the office. Uh, so how are things going there at a high level?
1: Um, at, a, at a high level, you know, no complaints. We're we're blessed with our business model. So you know, I uh, I'm just grateful that I work for Iron Mountain. If you have to go through such a tough period, and even you know, I think the last time, as you say, you and I was doing this from home, but I'm going back and forth. I've been coming to the office pretty much since May. Um, And, you know, most of our, 96% of our facilities remained open even during the depths of the crisis, obviously 100% are open now. And I've spent a fair amount of time also on the road seeing customers both in the United States and uh, Europe. So it's, um, you know, no complaints, but we do think as a company that 2021 is going to be another COVID year. In other words, what we said with our guidance it, when we, we gave guidance a couple of weeks ago for the year, and we said that 2021 from a macroeconomic standpoint and activity level is going to be the same as 2020, but just in reverse. In other words, we had a record quarter in the first quarter of 2020. And then of course the rest of the year was COVID impacted. And we think the you know the first two or three quarters of this year are going to continue at kind of the same trend line that we saw in Q4 of 2020 with a recovery in the back end so that you know but but no no big complaints
0: sure well of course Iron Mountain is a highly diversified business model we cover the company as you know and with a global footprint uh so one of the interesting things is I think you know you can see uh you have your finger on the pulse of of many different markets many different customers uh across the globe uh can you touch a little bit about that give us some insight and kind of what you're seeing you know, in the U.S. and some of the customers in the U.S. Uh, and also, if you could just, a lot of people viewing or listening to this may not, as be, may not be as familiar. Would you mind reminding the audience a little bit about your business model uh, from, obviously, boxes to data centers? Okay,
1: no, sure. Happy to do that. So as you, as you alluded to, Brad, you know, we are a very international company. So we're, you know, 56 countries around the globe. So we're probably the most, I think we are by far the most international of any of the REITs. And, you know, that business model uh, gives us kind of a, or that spread gave us a little bit of a head start when it came to COVID, because obviously we were dealing with COVID in China, you know, starting the end of uh, 2019, you know, December, definitely January of uh, 2020. So we were already responding and building in our protocols uh, based on what we were seeing in Hong Kong, China, and eventually all of Southeast Asia. As a result, if you kind of look just again from a macro standpoint, those markets, while they're still locked down, you know, for instance, Hong Kong has very strict quarantine requirements right now. They've had a, uh, a small outbreak. Australia, you can say the same. But they've actually been able to get their economies going again through very, you know, cons- very strict controls in terms of their, their borders. So whilst it's kind of not very easy for international travelers or business to go back and forth in terms of our local business and our businesses, Generally local in those areas, those those businesses are still booming, and of course our data center business continues to to also do very well as people are actually going more and more digital and online, which leads me to kind of more on the on the business process. So you know we're celebrating our 70th year in business this year, and as you said, we started with the ubiquitous box, which everyone knows Iron Mountain for, and you know is the the gift that keeps giving. I mean that's a 75% gross margin business. You know, and and what that means in a real estate term is, let's say we incur cost at five or six dollars a square foot on industrial real estate, whether we own it or we lease it. And because we we rent out air, you know, we charge by the cubic foot is that turns out to be north of thirty dollars a square foot in terms of what we get for for rental income. So, you know, the um, so that, you know, that delta, that margin gives us a very, very healthy margin of that business. And, you know, whilst the, you know, paper is definitely. Uh, not being used like it used to be historically, is what we see that that volume of 750 million cubic, approaching 750 million cubic feet around the world is kind of flat. I think we were down maybe 1% last year in terms of 2020 in terms of physical volume, but adding three points of prices, we grew that business at over 2% organic revenue growth in 2020 in a COVID year. So we were able to get organic uh, revenue growth from that, and because it is a mature business, you can imagine that it just you know gushes cash, which you know, is a high paying uh, REIT, uh, dividend stock a uh, high paying dividend uh, REIT stock that you know that fuels the dividend plus allows us to grow in the new areas. so in the new areas, where do we really see the higher levels of organic growth and I should say that this year you know we uh, set guidance at four to eight uh, percent revenue growth uh, pre acquisition for the company. And, you know, that's a record in the last 10 years. So where's that growth coming from? So, yeah, we're continuing to grow revenue from the, from the traditional side of the business. But our digital services, for instance, in, in 2020, which is really helping our customers on their digital transformation on how they use that information that we store, whether it's physical or digital, is that grew 8% organic revenue growth on our digital services portfolio in a COVID year. You know, overall, our service revenue was down because we still have quite a bit of services associated with people, you know, either picking up boxes or sending them back. But if you look at our pure digital revenue, which ended the year with about two hundred seventy million dollars worth of revenue, that was growing at over eight percent, and we expect that to grow another fifty million on top of that two hundred seventy um, this year organically. So that that digital transformation business is really growing. And I say a big part of that is if you think about our customers, everyone says they have data lakes, right? Well, actually what most of our customers have is data ponds, right? And you know, what they need is they need something that goes across the top of that, that allows them to ingest physical assets, which we have a lot of, as well as ingest their digital assets from those different ponds so that they can have really a data lake where they can seamlessly access their information and then analyze it, or add value, or create products for their customers. So that that part of the business is growing really, really well. And then the other end of the spectrum, in terms of you know the digital version of our physical warehouse or industrial real, real estate, is the data center business. So you know in data center, you know we were a relatively new entry five years ago, and uh, last year we signed new leases in that in, in the 15 to 20 megawatts range. We guided a similar growth this year, which would have been about 15 percent. Growth rate, which is a pretty good clip in the in the um, data center third party data center space, and we actually signed up over 58 megawatts this year. So um, you know, you know, it was really a really a terrific year, or I should say, 2020 was a terrific year for our data center business. So you know, the company, um, you know, whilst well, so I'd be the first to say I'd rather not go through another COVID year, is um, know we we came through that company we learned uh, that period we learned a lot of things as a company as a management team we learned a lot about the things that our customers were really you know where they were moving towards and in some of that accelerate and that acceleration we were able to you know cap you know capture with some of the products that we're offering and so if you come out to this year which is again i say we're not expecting a rebound in terms of macroeconomic activity but our products and services are more resonating with our customers today, which is what led to that four to eight percent top line growth going into to 2021. And the one thing I would just say, the thing that that underpins that, you know, that doesn't come out of a vacuum. It's not just that our customers have changed. Is if you go back five years ago, the total addressable market that our products and services were focused at um, was about 10 billion globally right, $10 billion market, and it was growing low single digits organic revenue growth. Today, the products and services that we've assembled over the last five years for our customers, um, around seven key product areas, is now a total addressable market of north of $80 billion. So the products and services that we've, we've developed on behalf of our customers over the last five years has increased our total addressable market or the target that our products and services are shooting at by eight times. So eight times bigger markets. And those markets are growing at organic revenue growth rates in the, are in the you know, 12, 13 percent range. So it's also a, a faster growing set of uh, set of businesses that we're focused on.
0: Yeah. Th- thank you, Bill. I- I've got to ask you this. This is really uh, kind of got my, my my wheels turning here. Um, you know, I'm in the financial newsletter business, research business, and very similar model we have is we have front-end customers, which are your kind of your core uh, storage customers, and you we you know upsell or upgrade into other products. So um, and the key to that for us and I think for you and your firm is to take those customers, front end customers, and move them up the channel to data storage. Um, so I'm just and, and I think frankly that in my opinion, is one of the primary competitive advantages of your firm is your vast, you know, call it Rolodex or your vast you know, business model, with all of these customers you have and be able to integrate into, you know, into data. So uh, can you touch on that a little bit? Because to me, that is really where the true value, when I really just drill it down, Iron Mountain, really the value is taking that customer to the front end all the way up to the data center, which is again, same thing in my business is how do you execute that? Uh, and obviously you're gaining scale in data centers um, to able to be able to, so you can accommodate those front end customers. Um, so how does that work? How do you, how do you integrate and take that customer from the front end to that, to that, uh, close that loop to the data center product?
1: It's a really good point, Brad, because if you, if you think about it, you know, the thing I always say, our two biggest assets, um, three including our, our our people. I'm very I'm very partial towards so my fellow mountaineers. But you know, if you think about business, you know, non-people assets, the, the business assets are you know that 75% gross margin box business that is the gift that keeps giving from a cash flow standpoint. But the other part is the thing that you came to is that is the customer base. So we have 225,000 customers across the globe. 950 of those are the top 1,000 companies in the world. So 950 of the Fortune 1000 are our customers. And we have a two, less than a 2% churn on that. So it means that, you know, on average, they've been with us for decades. You know, if you do the inverse of that, it's 50 years. So most of those customers have been with us almost since we started 70 years ago. And that is, to your point, just a huge base. It, and, it, and, and we recognize that. And, and in fairness, you know, part of what I, you know, when I said that with these products and services have positioned us, the other thing is we've changed the way that we go to market with our sales force. So one of the things that we stood up in 2019 to capture, you know, a lot of what I would call that product R&D that we did in listening to customers is we created a global strategic account Salesforce and we hired people in from Accenture, from SAP, from Salesforce, from IBM, from HP, So it's a very different conversation with the customer. So what we're saying is part of our our summit program, which you and I have talked about, which is our transformation program, which obviously has a big cost out. The other part is cultural, where it's saying really our North star is the customer. In other words, we're not worried about what we have in our briefcase, the product we wanna sell. We wanna say, what's the problem that they're trying to get solved? Or what's the job to be done for them? And then we marshal those things. And because of that access to the 950 of the largest customers who have the most complex problems is they're looking for a range of services, which, you know, which is the reason why we relaunched our brand this week. Right. Because you'll see now in the new logo, it's three mountains rather. It's a mountain range rather than a single mountain. And what you know, the common thing is. What is the customer looking for, to do? And customers, part of their digital transformation is looking for a broader range of services. So, you mentioned data center, for instance. So, on data center, 40% of our customer leads on data center come from our traditional sales force. So, yes, we have a you know, highly skilled, dedicated sales force for data center. And no, most of those people have you know digital realty, Equinix, QTS. CoreSight, Cyrus One, and their resume. So, you know, these are all, you know, these are sales reps who have been in that area for a very long time. But 40% of the leads that they start working with come from either our traditional sales force or more and more from our global strategic accounts, right? So, to give you an example on global strategic accounts, is just in the last um, month. So, in the last three or four weeks, I've been on two sales calls with our global strategic accounts, uh, one for a bank and one for a, you know, one of the largest banks in the United States, large regional bank, um, and, and the other one with a large U.S. insurance company, right? So these are, and, and we're dealing with the CTO and CIO of both organizations. Both of those organizations have just done a major acquisition. So major acquisition is a trigger event, really, for a number of things that they need to get done, problems they need to get solved. And the discussion we had with them was everything about how do they absorb that and create a data lake where they have all these ponds. How do they create more metadata so they can minimize the risk? And, and if they're acquiring things, to make sure the assets that they're supposed to get control of, they, they're they've got visibility of, and the ones they want destroyed get destroyed. And how do they think about the background backbone infrastructure that they're they're bringing on board in terms of. Data center. You know, how much is going to go into public cloud, how much of it is going to go into private cloud, but in a modernized third party data center, rather than trying to build their own data center. So you start having those multifaceted discussions. And, you know, one thing I, we're all benefiting from is from my predecessor is that, you know, he's built this company around that type, that level of trust and customer access and what's changed with the company in the last five years is we broaden our portfolio of things so that rather than just solving a small sliver of the problem is we can actually go and have a broader conversation with the customer which you know for customers they especially when they're under the gun uh, they appreciate
0: that's that's very interesting and, and again i it's this uh this really is reflective of not only i'm i'm sure investors or potential investors Uh, Like to hear from that, but I can. I've learned a lot just following Iron Mountain. Is I've covered the company now for a number of years since since you know converting to a REIT. It's been a couple of years now, and one of the things you mentioned the low churn rate, and to me that that ties directly into customer service. Um, You know, I didn't interview Howard Schultz, but I remember reading his book, Starbucks former Starbucks CEO, and I think the takeaway from his book is what are the what are the two most important words of any business, customer service and it looks it appears that based on fundamentals I can see that you know your company has really done a good job with customer service now I want to tie that into um, the uh, the project summit uh, obviously that was a pretty transformational deal for the company uh, can you touch on that I know I know that commenced prior to covid but now that's pretty much been completed so can you take us through the beginning to the end of uh, project summit.
1: Okay, no, no thanks, Brian. And look, it's better to be lucky than good. I'm glad that we started Project Summit in you know November 2019 rather than you know not having it started before we got into COVID, right? Because what Project Summit, you know, and the first thing that Wall Street recognizes is they they see the, the cost program. You know, we, we've upgraded the, the savings a couple times, but you know during the middle of COVID we upgraded that to 375 million ongoing EBITDA improvement. So, you know, that's a massive improvement to the EBITDA of the company. And we already, when we exited 2020, 200 million on an exit run rate was already in the can, right? So we're making real, as you said, you know, we're making really good progress. And when we exit this year, you know, pretty much everything will be implemented. So, you know, starting going into, you know, 2022 is we'll have 375 million benefit versus where we were in 2019. So that's a, you know, massive shift in terms of the profitability of the company. And I, you know, I, I alluded to getting into COVID, is just think about the analytical teams that we had spun up to really understand every facet of our business, and then you have a drop in service revenue of up to 40% during the peak of COVID that gave us the analytical understanding of the way you know, our business worked at a much deeper level in certain areas that we were able to react to that and also take advantage of it. We also changed some of our service offerings, not just temporarily in terms of COVID, but permanently in terms of making sure that people are directed towards getting their data back digitally rather than the box back physically. And that has benefits for our customers, but also had you know huge benefits for us from a, from a cost of delivery standpoint. But I think the other aspect about it, which was, you know, you mentioned about the transformation, the real transformation of the company is culturally, which is really what's also showing up in some of this revenue growth. Part of Summit was standing up that global strategic accounts that I mentioned and and hiring a different type of sales rep or identifying people internally that had those skills. So a number of our sales reps, I should say, are long-term mountaineers that have grown up in the company, but had that different mindset of, you know, of, you know, of, what I would call problem solving rather than transactional selling. The other aspect about it is, is really this thing about the customer being the North Star and being maniacal about it, right? And I think as a company, you know, it, it is fair to say we were much more operationally driven for years rather than customer driven. And you know, that was because we really pride ourselves around the trust of our customers. You know, and, and to be trustworthy is you have to have operational excellence, right? And we're not going to take our eye off the ball. But you know, we had forgotten about sometimes who actually sent us that that you know that check. And you know, so that was part of the transformation. The other part of it was, I would say, getting rid of, rid of rid of levels of management and where it doesn't add value. So the first thing we did in November 2019, we took out 45% of the vice presidents and above, which people said, you know, how do you do that? And it it you know, it was painful on a personal level for all of us, including myself but it was the right thing to do. And we weren't two months into that, that people said, this is really the right thing to do. Because what we realized is that we had built levels of procedures that really didn't add any value, but just slowed things down. So you come into COVID and what we said to ourselves, even pre-COVID in January, 2020, when we actually got the, the enterprise leadership team together, we said, if this feels like the same company 12 months from now, in terms of speed, agility, you know, the way we actually interact with customers, then we will have failed this project summit. Yeah, we will have gotten the 375 million. Our shareholders will be very grateful for that. But we will have failed in terms of really seizing our ability to grow with our customers and serve them in a better and more fuller way. And, you know, luckily, you know, I think we're still on that cultural transformation. Culture is harder than cost, for sure. But I think when you see our revenue guidance, the confidence that we have around our revenue guidance this year, which is really, you know, a high mark in the last 10 years in terms of where we're setting it, is we're starting to make we're starting to make a difference in terms of the way the company acts and feels internally.
0: Great. I want to if we could uh, shift over, Bill, to talk about a little bit of uh, the balance sheet, you know, capital formation. You know, on on several calls, we've we've discussed the sell leaseback monetization of your owned real estate, and of course, you have uh, completed uh, a couple tranches of sell leasebacks. I was uh, kind of taken taken back with the cap rates uh, there uh, were pretty impressive. uh, Frankly, I think they were in the fours. Um, You know, had a four handle there, which certainly great time to be selling into you know, industrial real estate right now at those kind of cap rates. So can you talk a little bit about that particular uh, part of the business model? And do you have any other, what type of guidance do you have? Or do you have any guidance in regards to future monetizations and sell leasebacks or other uh, real estate sales? Okay.
1: No, thanks, Brett. So, you know, when we we really kind of look at the overall financial model of the of the company. So, you know, first of all, it starts with you know, the dividend. So we feel really good where the dividend is. We also feel that a combination of summit and the growth, you know, that four to 8% revenue growth and the ability to grow AFFO is going to naturally glide us down to around, you know, the 60% of AFFO uh, payout ratio in terms of our dividend. You know, we ended the year around 80. So we feel really good in terms of that trajectory. But part of, you know, when we look at capital allocation, is that you know we're we're continuing to have a lot of success in data centers. As I said, you know, we signed up 58 megawatts this past year, past in 2020. Um, we've guided the market that will, you know, probably you know somewhere be around the 25 to 30 megawatts this year, you know, as we go into uh, 2021, which we feel pretty comfortable about. So, you know, we'll continue to find opportunities, especially in data center, where we can further invest. So we kind of think about capital allocation in those. Types of categories, you know, feel really comfortable where the dividend is. Obviously, when we get down to around 60% of AFFO, um, the REIT rules are going to require us to, you know, continue to, you know, add to the dividend in line with AFFO growth. That's all good. But we, you know, we continue to say, you know, if there's opportunities to invest in data center, we want to be able to do that. So then you kind of take a, you know, a pure, what I would call um, capital allocation framework, and you say, okay, where do I want to harvest cash and where do I want to put cash? And you know, uh, both the CFO, Barry Heighton and myself kind of are, you know, disciples of the, the book Outsiders, right, which is a very nice piece in terms of thinking about capital allocation. And our view right now, you know, we have a large portfolio of industrial assets, a big chunk we own, you know, some we lease. And we kind of look at where cap rates are with industrial real estate. And we say, you know, the relative cap rates there versus data center, we just like that trade, right? And we don't need, to own the industrial real estate asset, in most cases, to control it. So, you know, we, we have a very kind of strategic view of which industrial real estate assets. Either we want to get out, and it's an infill opportunity, or we think we're just as happy to have a lease on that facility, which gives us long-term control. And, you know, when you can get uh, cap rates, you know, four and a half and sub four and a half is our view that, you know, I'd rather put my money in data center when we have those kinds of trades. Now, there are, you know, we do put filters on it, just to be clear, is that, you know, we look at the location of that asset, we also look at our ability to reuse that asset as a data center. So in other words, if it's a data, if it's a industrial asset where we think it has good access to fiber, good access to power in an area where a number of our data center customers are interested, quite frankly we, you know, we hang on to that site because we'd rather own it if we're going to turn it into a data center. And, you know, with our 80 million square feet or it's now approaching 90 million square feet around the globe is we have a number of locations where we've had data center customers approach us and say, you know, we would like, you know, we're looking for two, four, six megawatts in the Munich area. Do you have an industrial, you know, warehouse that you could convert to do that? So, you know, we have a land bank for our data center business that's that's bigger than what we state you know, in our data center segment reporting, because we look at all of our industrial real estate. So, you know, there's some that, you know, you might say, well, why aren't you doing a sale lease back there? It's because we're kind of providing or we're hanging on to optionality for data center, potential data center down the road. But there's still a very big part of our industrial real estate footprint that we think, given the relative cap rates, it makes sense to do that.
0: Yeah. So we can kind of move over there into maybe cost of capital, Um, because I know, you know, obviously, you're not a direct data center, pure play, you know, data center REIT, but you do compete, you know, with uh, digital and, and Cyrus One and the, and, and the others. Um, so obviously, the one, one competitive advantage they have over Iron Mountain is the fact they do have a better cost of capital. So can you talk a little bit about that? I know you don't have the investment-rated grade rated balance sheet, but of course, you mitigate some of that risk through your diversified revenue streams and so forth. so can you talk about your, your cost of capital and particularly your leverage? Do you see the leverage going down and are you able to utilize any of these funds from uh, these sell these backs to reduce your debt profile?
1: Yeah. So um, look, we don't feel like, if, if you look at where our leverage is relative to the JP Morgan read index on leverage, we're kind of in the, we're in kind of the middle, but we, you know, we've made it clear that we, our leverage range for us ideally is between 45 and a half and five and a half times uh, lease adjusted EBITDA. Right. And, you know, we finished the year at five, three and change. Actually, if you modify, because we did a sale lease back just before the end of the year, what we said is you should think about that as kind of like five, four point, you know, five, four and a half, five, five. Right. So that's kind of, so we, we ended the year at the upper end of our stated, you know, target range for, for, uh, leverage. And, you know, we'll end up this year, you know, sub five, four. Right. So we, you know, in, in, don't forget, in 2019, we were 5.7. So even in a COVID year, we've come from 5.7 to, I would say, you know, a, a print of 5.3 and change, but as they normalize, I would call that, say, 5.5, and, and we're continuing to drive it down. We expect to be, you know, sub 5.4 for, for, uh, uh, for 2021. So, yes, we do want to continue to kind of drift down in that range. You say, you know, the, the reason why the range is so wide isn't about investment grade, It's about optionality. In other words, you know, if you're at four and a half, you have more optionality if you you see, you know, an investment that you'd like to to make. But we're very comfortable in our current range. And if you look at the pricing of our debt, I don't think we're at a big advantage versus disadvantage versus, you know, the the Cyruses or the core size in the sense that because people really like our bonds. So when we, you know, we did a lot of refinancing in 2020, um, you know, right during the midst of COVID. And we're financing at rates that are kind of at the upper end of investment grade. So, you know, we're not investment grade, but we're, you know, we like the pricing on our bonds. So, you know, when we go out to the debt market, so we don't see a big issue there, but we do, you should expect the way our financial model works that that will, you know, we'll we'll, continue to walk and chew gum at the same time. We'll continue to drift that down. AFFO will come, um, payout ratio will come down even faster. And we're continuing to invest, you know, the 300 odd million a year in data center, right? Um, the sale lease back, you know, um, that, that helps, gives us some of the fuel in the tank. The other thing that those, our peers don't have on the data center is that box business, which is a 75% gross margin business, which just gushes cash and we put very little money into it, right? You know, maintain the service, but we don't have to expand facilities because, you know, from a volume standpoint, you know, this year it'll be the volume organically be slightly up, especially if adding consumer, but you know it's it's manageable from a capex standpoint. So we're we're generating a lot of cash in that business. We have some assets that we can recycle, and we feel really good about the way the financial model is uh, is working. On the equity side, you're right, but we don't feel you know our financial we don't have to equitize these assets, right? So we don't have to run the ATM or go out and place uh, equity to to fund and still delever over time. And in you know in fairness that you know we think that. We, you know, we, we think some of these things, you know, um, even if we could equitize them, I'm not sure that's the, the right trade to do it because, you know, we think that, um, you know, we can access the debt markets and we generate generate enough cash internally that we should just fund them directly. I guess, you know, internal cash, we are equitizing them, but we're not, uh, we're not issuing stock to do that.
0: Sure. Well, I guess I want to uh, maybe closing question, Bill, and, and I always like to close with, I think, for the most important you know, part of that conversation for the retail investor is, of course, the dividend, and of course, you know, dividend is not a, the yield is not as high as it was you know a couple of months back, which is good. We've seen a recovery uh, trade there, but still, uh, you know, still some value there with the shares, and obviously, the high yield is reflective of that. Um, so, as you try to, in your words, talk and chew gum at the same time, um, you know, uh, you've got a pretty good record there of. You know, dividend inc- increases, uh, I forget the number, I think it was perhaps 10 years or something in a row uh, of increases. Um, you know, really as, as you move, as you convert it to a REIT, um, you know, do you, and again, I've do uh, you, you, you possibly look at increasing just a marginal half a percent just to maintain that record? I know you're trying to get that payout ratio down. Um, I know the dividend's sustainable, but I guess, you know, what are your thoughts on trying to even a modest increase going forward uh, versus just, you know, stay at, stay at the same rate? How important is that dividend record? And, and I ask you that question because obviously in COVID, we've seen a number of companies, you know, cut, number of them REITs, cut their dividend. I think the list is 70 or so now. Um, hopefully the worst is over, but I also have to admire those companies that were able to increase those dividends even through difficult times, and I look at companies like Realty Income, which has that you know that 27 or 8-year track record, uh, who who did increase the dividend, and 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 Federal Realty is another one uh, that we cover that had a payout ratio of a hun- over 100% in the fourth quarter, but they continue to pay out that dividend because they are a dividend king with you know 50 plus years of dividend uh, increases. So I'm just curious. How important is that dividend growth? And again, I know you're not going to have a huge growth pattern going forward because uh, of, of, uh, you know, of the fact you're, you know, you're trying to reduce that payout ratio. But what are your thoughts there?
1: Well, it's a great question, Brad. I guess the thing what I would ask investors to kind of take a step back and say, okay, um, look at the total return in the business, right? So this is a business that if you think about, you know, we're a beta 0.9 or so, you know, typical kind of read right which says that you know we should be kind of in the 7 to 9% tsr rate right between dividend plus ebitda growth or affo growth multiple flat right so you, you, that should be roughly the you know the the mantra anything over that is an overperformance right so if you, so I just want to kind of, you know, people coming in at a 6.5% dividend yield, I said that we're growing, you know, forgetting about Summit, which is obviously a massive growth to AFFO, but even on a normalized base going out, you know, 4 to 8% revenue growth, you know, you turn that, you, you should be thinking about the leverage on that is going to be similar rates or slightly better on AFFO growth, right? right. So that 4 to 8% because of the leverage in the company, you know, in terms of operating leverage, I'm not talking about uh, debt leverage, but operating leverage is should yield more than four to eight percent AFFO growth. So if you have kind of take the midpoint, that's six percent, right? Yeah. On a six six and a half percent dividend, yield, you're approaching thirteen percent TSR, right? Yes. So so you know my argument. Look, I'm I'm the salesman, right? Everyone right. sells, right? But, you know my argument is that the company is still grossly undervalued from a you know from a you know capital asset pricing model, you know you know framework, right? right. So so that's kind of the starting point. Yeah. Now, on your question in terms of dividend growth, both Barry and I have been very clear is that, you know, our goal is, you know, we think if we look at our REIT peers who are investing a lot of CapEx, and we look at last year, we had 58 megawatts, over 58 megawatts of new sales on data center, our investors, when they're looking at total shareholder return, which is a combination of AFFO growth and dividend, are going to want us to continue to invest in that, right? right. And you know to me that kind of combination so the way i kind of think about it is if you say the clearing price is somewhere between a 7 and 9% tsr you can do the maths yeah. in terms of where our share price appreciation can go you know and you can turn that into a dividend yield right yeah. but so that's kind of where you know we don't want to do anything that's going to slow down that that growth in affo because we think that there's there's actually, because of the, you know, our argument is that the stock being mispriced right now, right? Yeah. There's there's real expansion on that. So, I mean, a long way of saying it is that we do think, you know, that, you know, and it's not going to take us very long to get to the low 60s and, yeah. and payout ratio. It may not meet your kind of question in terms of time frame We're not giving long range guidance, but you can do your own modeling, you know, based on, on Project Summit and just yeah. the, the overall growth in the business, but you'll find that we get to a forcing function where the REIT rules are going to require us to start growing dividend in line with uh, AFFO growth. So we feel pretty good where we are. But yep. we, you know, to, to do kind of symbolic changes in the dividend, we think that distract that distracts from the, the story.
0: Yeah. No, I hear you. Well, I got a trade off here, and I'm, um, you know, I'm, i Remember, I've got an army of retail investors behind me here, uh, watching the video and, and, and reading my articles. So here's the trade-off. You know, we could pay monthly dividends instead of an increase. Um, you know, the, these uh, average Joe and average Jane who are uh, reading and watching, they would like to get that monthly dividend. So there's a trade-off for you to think about. Uh, is maybe that monthly dividend company and uh, perfect time? You got this branding in place now, and uh, you know. But again, I really appreciate it because I do think I think the bottom line here, the, the big takeaway, at least for me is I think the dividend is sustainable at that level. You're obviously pushing it down. Um, You know, Bill, I've got a lot of people asking me uh, every day about inflation and how REITs are going to be impacted by inflation. And I think let's close with this because I think this is important, especially for Iron Mountain, a company that, you know, has the ability to increase uh, your your core revenue uh, quite, quite easily. You've got so many customers, so you can move that that needle a lot easier than a lot especially these lump, these companies like realty income and the net lease REITs, they don't have that capability. So can you closing thoughts, touch on, you know, kind of how your business, you know, could be impacted it with inflation uh, conditions?
1: No, I, well, I appreciate the question, Brad, because I think you're right. I mean, if you look at the REIT sector, generally, it typically trades off as, as bond prices increase or fixed income increase, because people see it as a, you know, as a competitor. And, you know, we actually think that we stand out in the in the REIT sector because, to your point of what we can do with price. So the thing I've always said is I do inflation dances, not on a personal basis, but from a company standpoint. Because you know, I go back to the box business where I said last year we put we pushed three points of price increase across our box business, which is already a, and it's a seventy-five percent gross margin business. So so guess what? Inflation, you know, it's always easier to put push disproportionate price increases in higher inflation environments. So like in some of like Latin America, we achieve much bigger bottom line improvement from pricing because they have hyperinflation, right? So it's, it's much easier to mask that. People are actually much, much more understanding of those types of price increases. So think about what that does when you have a 75% gross margin business. So the way we get our price increases today is because of the likes of UPS and FedEx. And, you know, everyone knows the pressure on e-commerce companies and courier companies. And so, you know, they're generally pushing four points of price. So we come in and we say we want three points and people say, OK, that sounds reasonable. The difference is, of course, they're on, you know, 3PL companies are probably on a 10 percent, you know, margin product. We're yes. on a 75% margin. Right. So that's generally getting that three points of price is generally margin expansion, you know, the, yes. you know, the way our, our mechanism works. Right. So long way of answering your point is, is that we know that it's a drag on the REIT segment in general, because the way people think about, you know, bond prices versus, right. you know, REITs, because we are, you know, we are an income oriented stock. Right. But for us, it gives us an ability to really outperform on AFFO growth. Because sure. of what we can do with price.
0: Exactly, exactly. Well, Bill, thank you so much for your time. Uh, it's good to see you again, and uh, we'll definitely catch ke- catch back up with you later in the year. Uh, hopefully, as this recovery continues, so uh, it's getting it's getting better every every time we get on the call. So let's let's check back in here in a couple months. Yep.
1: Yeah, well, hopefully, we'll both be back before before July. So anyway, take <laughs> care, Brad. All right, thanks.
0: Thank you. Bye bye.